If you have your Bibles, please turn them to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll start in verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And I'll read through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, today our verses will be 17 and 18 here in 1 Peter chapter 4. And on the last sermon that I preached in 1 Peter, I, I shared from Scripture a portion of Peter's own testimony. And I, ho- I hope you, you saw how God brought Peter to a spiritual maturity through Peter's trials and sufferings. And how Peter continued to do good works and preach the gospel amidst those tribulations. And as today, we'll we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. But before we do that, I want to remind you of two more experiences in Peter's own testimony that will help us to, to understand, and it helped Peter to understand how to encourage his Christian readers to grow up into their salvation and to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. So the first one we saw in Luke 22, 31 through 32 Jesus tells Peter that his faith will be shaken by Satan. Satan wishes to sift you, Peter. But his faith won't fail, and when Peter gets through that experience, he must strengthen his brothers. That was the command given by Jesus. Strengthen your brothers when you've turned, Peter. And then the second experience. Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection and opens their minds to the scriptures before his ascension. And that's in Luke 24, 44 through 47. And I'll read that. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So those are two of Peter's experiences and through those experiences, 
Peter's mind had been opened to understand the scriptures. Peter now knows the temptations and the attacks by the enemy that every Christian will experience. And Peter knows how to use the scriptures to encourage every Christian to grow in their love and obedience to God. And so Peter writes these two verses that we're going to look at today, and he writes them to encourage us, not to condemn us. So it's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And in these two verses that we look at today, we will see Peter start with an assertion of truth. And then ask two questions that will drive his readers to think biblically while going through fiery trials to test them. So Peter knows what thoughts and questions will penetrate the minds of Christians when we are in the midst of suffering for being obedient to our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Peter has an understanding of this. Peter understands that we will suffer when we are obedient to Jesus Christ and when we're zealous for what God says is good. So look how Peter starts the paragraph leading up to these verses, and I'll read this over. He starts in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery, fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And by starting with these verses that I just quoted and going to the questions that we'll see in 17 and 18, Peter implies that every Christian as they suffer in many as various ways, will ask the same question that the psalmist asks. What would this question be? Why are God's people suffering and evil people going unpunished? Do you ask that question? This question is asked all throughout the Bible, and it's very clear in Psalm 73. The psalmist asked the same question. So if you would, turn to Psalm 73, and we'll read that. So we can get just a picture of what the psalmist was thinking, as he had the same issue, suffering for righteousness' sake. Psalm 73, and I'm going to read the whole thing. Truly... God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind." Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues, their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? 
Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered and I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. <clears throat> and if you've noticed when, we, when I was reading that, he just goes back and forth. These people, not only are they unpunished, but they're getting richer they're getting more powerful. They're getting more arrogant towards God. They scoff at him more and more, and God's not doing anything. So the psalmist has the same question, but then he goes into the sanctuary of God, and he sees their end. He sees where they will be. And he sees that his place, his riches are being close to the Lord. The Lord is his refuge and his portion. So why are God's people suffering and evil people going unpunished? Have you asked this question during the midst of your suffering? Have you asked this question while being obedient to Christ and others aren't? Right? Do you look out at the world and ask, why are God's people suffering and evil people going unpunished? It seems to be continual. So Peter, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, he will answer that question for us today. Maybe not like we think. Maybe not like we want. But he will answer that question for us. So Peter starts with an assertion of truth, otherwise known as stating a fact with certainty. And look there in 1 Peter, if you would go back to 1 Peter 4 and 17. He starts out, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And Peter here puts verses 12 and 16 to a broader theological context, meaning that he is giving these Christians a picture of what God is doing in the world. These suffering Christians going through fiery trials, Peter's saying, this is the big picture. You're only seeing small. You need to see big. You need to see large. So 
So Peter is encouraging these suffering Christians that this judgment is from God, and God's judgment comes through the fiery trials from verse 12, just as Peter has already written in 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin. And what time period is Peter speaking about? That's my question. When? When does this judgment begin? Well, the Bible is pretty clear about that. This judgment starts from the time of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and it lasts until the second coming of the Lord Jesus. That's the time period. I don't know when it ends. I know it ends when he comes. So for the time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and this word judgment here in verse 17, here it's translated from the Greek word krima, which means a judgment that would lead to approval or discipline, but not condemnation. So this is how God judges the righteous, right? The people that are in Christ. And the difference there is we, we see throughout the Bible the word judgment is sometimes used as kata krima, and that is the judgment that leads to condemnation. But Peter's using krima. So let's look at an example of the word krima used for judgment. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 11, and I'll read verses 27 through 32. And we'll kind of see this through that. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment, otherwise crema, on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see that? This judgment we're talking about is a judgment that doesn't condemn those who are in Christ. Because he's talking about the household of God. That's why. But Peter is here, he's speaking of God's fatherly judgment that springs forth from his love towards his adopted children in which the father disciplines his children for their good so that they may share in his holiness. This is that fatherly judgment that God looks upon his children. So when you properly understand this judgment, you will understand that this judgment from God, this is a true benefit to those who have been adopted by God, the Father, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when I went through that doctrine of adoption, this is actually, this verse here is one of the benefits of being an adopted child of God. It's the Father's loving judgment, the Father's loving discipline. 
So to better understand this, I'll look at a, I'll give you a couple places in Scripture, but one of them is right here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 17. It says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And it's not that you're going to be condemned by the Father, but he's going to discipline you. He's going to bring that salvation, that sanctification, to completion, whether you like it or not. The second scripture I'll read here, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So you see where we're going with this. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So now that we have a better understanding of this judgment Peter is speaking about, hopefully we will see the encouraging aspects of being judged by God. So we'll, we'll move on. But I hope you have a little better understanding of that, that These fiery trials, these sufferings that each one of us goes through, they are actually God's blessing upon us, although it doesn't feel like it, although we don't like it, although we don't even realize it at the time that it's happening. So Peter has given us a picture from the Old Testament on God's activity concerning his children in the New Covenant. Peter's painting through this a whole big picture that we can look at. And I want to, I'll I'll let you, you'll see this more clearly in a few moments, but let's just kind of look at some of these words in that first sentence. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It seems when it's translated over into the English, it gets just kind of a little messed up. We don't, we don't speak Greek, but we'll look at this a little more. So the word at For it is time for judgment to start at. Well, this is sometimes replaced with the word with, but the original Greek rendering should be from, as Peter is clearly pointing back to the Old Testament. So listen to the way it says now if I change that word. For it is time for judgment to begin from the household of God. Did you hear the difference? Instead of at, judgment starts from. We're going to see a picture of what God's doing overall here. So let's look at that word household. So the, 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 the ESV uses household of God, 
and some translations, newer LSB, NASB, they use house of God, the proper term. But the ESV actually uses the word household to emphasize the family-like nature of the church. And if you read through all of 1 Peter, you will see that Peter never uses the word church. That's why nobody uses church here, because Peter never uses it one time in the book of 1 Peter. It's a family. It's a family-oriented book, 1 Peter. That's why he starts out with the adopted children, the obedient children calling on their father. So the Greek rendering is the house of God, which is what Peter writes about, the children of God being built up as a spiritual house. So in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter points back to this part, and he's saying, This is God building his house. And this is how he builds it. Judgment starts from this house. Some could say this temple. Because we are the temple of God now, right? God dwells in us. So for it is time for judgment to begin from the house of God. That's closer to the, the Greek rendering. So Peter is putting us, Peter is pointing us to the Old Testament Testament to see that God's judgment always starts with the people of God and that God has not changed. So when we look back at our Old Testaments, God's judgment always starts on God's own people. It always starts from his people and moves, but it's always his people. Others he'll let sit in their sin for 400 years. He'll just let them stay in their sins, but he judges his people. He, he's close to them. So I've kind of given you just kind of a better understanding for it is time for judgment to begin from the house of God. So let's look at some examples from the Old Testament that Peter's pointing us to for our encouragement to remain obedient to Christ through these fiery trials. We have this whole Old Testament that teaches us how God works, what his activity is. And Peter keeps pointing us back there because his mind has been open to those scriptures. So let's look at these. Um, if you turn to Ezekiel 9, we'll read through this. And this is a little more gruesome, but we'll read it. It's God's word. We need to hear it. And I'll read the whole chapter, and then I'll make a few observations for you. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his wrist, and they went in and stood besides the, beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the, throat, the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. 
And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens. Let their children and women, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they begin with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking, and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, and the city full of injustice. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back word, saying, I have done as you have commanded me. So although it's a little gruesome, it's not God loves you just the way you are and everything's going to be okay because he'd never hurt you or any little children. But God is waiting. If you're not in Christ, you are storing up that kind of judgment for yourself. So a couple of, couple of things here from chapter 9. And Wayne Grudem points this out. Ezekiel 9 pictures the Lord calling to the executioners of judgment to draw near, to bring judgment on Jerusalem for its horrible sins. One messenger of God puts a mark on the forehead of all who are found to sigh and groan over the abominations committed in Jerusalem. Then the executioners of judgment are told to kill all who do not have the mark on their foreheads. Significantly, God tells the executioners, begin from my sanctuary. And Ezekiel adds, so they begin from the elders who were inside the house. The words begin from, used twice here, are the same words Peter uses to say, that it is time for judgment to begin from the house of God. House is also the same word in both places. Ezekiel 9, 1 Peter, they use the same words because Peter is an Old Testament prophet. He's pointing us right back to what God's doing. So let's look at Malachi 3 as well. I want to get a, a big picture of what God is doing right now in our time. So Malachi chapter 3, and Peter uses this same big picture throughout all of 1 Peter. If you go back and just read through 1 Peter a couple times, you'll see this big picture language. I'll read to you Malachi 3 verses 1 through 5. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, 
and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the saucers, against the adulterers, against those who fear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So you see the picture. He starts out, he judges his own people. He judges his own priests. And then he moves out to the people who have oppressed him, who the, the people that have been against God. That judgment moves out and it turns into a condemnation. No longer the loving Father's judgment, but God the judge's condemnation upon a people who would not turn to him. Starting in Jerusalem. So just a couple things there in Malachi. In verses 1 and 2, it predicts that the Lord himself will suddenly come to his temple as the messenger of the covenant. And then verses 3 and 4 there in Malachi, it speaks of the Lord himself purifying the priests. The Lord will refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness that are pleasing to the Lord. Then verse 5, it says, The Lord draws near for judgment for those outside his house, otherwise known as unbelievers. That's what I wrote down, just observation. And if you can, go back this week and just read right through the book of 1 Peter, and you'll see all these words. Peter uses all these words right throughout 1 Peter, training us to think biblically. So let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse A, or, or verse 17 there. For it is time for judgment to begin from the house of God. And as I said at the start, Peter has just stated a fact with certainty that this is what God is doing in the here and now. He is doing that today. We look around, we see the world, it looks dim, it looks dark. We don't want to go out because we may suffer. And so God stays with us and judges us, disciplines us. And he'll go out to the world later. We see it throughout history. So let's move on to the second half of the verse 17 here, where Peter lays out the first of two questions that he wants Christians to think about during their fiery trials of suffering. So verse 17, the second half, part, or 17b, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So now we're going from us to the people who do not obey the gospel of God. So let's start here with those who do not obey the gospel of God. When we read this in the English, it seems fairly soft, as if people just decide not to make a decision to follow Christ at the end of an altar call. If you just read this quickly, oh, they didn't, they, they said no to the gospel. I, I handed them a track, I shared the gospel with them, they said no, that's not for me. But in the Greek, this is strong language. And in the Greek, these words are very strong. They mean that these people are stubbornly disobeying the gospel of God. And these people disobey with a hatred towards God. So to us, it might look like they're just saying, no. Or, that's your truth. 
but they are stubbornly disobeying the gospel. There is no neutrality. So one thing that I wrote down here is this implies that these suffering Christians in their culture, in this time, these suffering Christians were sharing God's gospel with everyone around them. We see that in 1 Peter 2, 9. They're proclaiming the excellencies of him who brought them out of darkness into this marvelous light. And I'm not saying we're just going out everywhere and sharing this gospel, but the people around you that know you, closest to you, probably the people that are causing some of your suffering, those are the people that these Christians were sharing the gospel with. And he says it's God's gospel. So they weren't sharing this little American, tiny little gospel where you get to make a decision. They were sharing a gospel that says Jesus will come again. God has appointed him to judge the living and the dead. God commands everyone everywhere to repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ. And they even go in more depth than that. They don't just give them the ABCs, right? The four spiritual laws. These Christians were suffering, but they were sharing the gospel. So who, who might these people be? in our time and day, who are disobeying the gospel. Because we, we tend to think, well, it's all the people out there that aren't in here worshiping on Sunday. Well, they're not hearing the gospel. How could they be disobeying it right now? You haven't shared the gospel with them. How can they disobey a gospel they haven't heard from you or anyone else, right? Who's he talking about here? These people might be people who make a profession of faith and join a church but never truly repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's these people. I've went to church all my life, just never repented. As Rick was saying at his last message, he's just my Savior. That's all I need. He's not my Lord. This is probably the scariest one that came to my mind. These people might be children who have grown up in the Christian household. They went to church throughout their childhood, and as adults, they forsake their knowledge of God for their love of the world. Do you know anyone like that? Are you one of those children today? Are you stubbornly disobeying the gospel? Or is there a chance you may stubbornly disobey that gospel when you leave your parents' household? These are the people Peter's talking about. So let's move on here. And Peter asked this question, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Peter wants us to think about these things as Christians. What will be their outcome? So their outcome is the opposite of the Christian who is judged by God as a loving father. They will face judgment by God the judge, which will lead to their eternal condemnation. 
So if you would, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll read this. What, what, what will be their outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? <clears throat> so in chapter 1, verse 3, 2 Thessalonians, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That doesn't sound good. And that's not meant to scare the unbelievers in here. That's meant for the Christians to be encouraged that that is not their end. Just because you are suffering, that doesn't mean that is your outcome. That's the encouragement here. That's a good example right there. Let's go back to verse 17. And I'll read it one more time and just see if you can hear the encouragement in this verse now. For it is time for judgment to begin from the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I hope it seems more encouraging. Listen to Wayne Grudem as he he writes about this. He says... The picture is that God has begun judging within the church and will later move outward to judge those outside the church. The refining fire of judgment is leaving no one untouched, but Christians are being purified and strengthened by it. Sins are being eliminated, and trust in God and holiness of life are growing. That's what's coming out of this. These sufferings, this judgment of God. It's causing you to eliminate the sins in your life and trust in God to live a holy life. These are all growing. You're just just coming into spiritual maturity. God is growing newborn babes up into adult Christians that will someday be in glory with Him. So I just wrote these couple questions. Do we think about these truths revealed in God's word as we are suffering for being Christians? Is this something that comes to your mind or are you still stuck on the other question? Right? Why are God's people suffering and the evil are going unpunished? Are you still stuck on that question? Or does your question come, how is God doing this in my life? How how does he want me to live? What is he doing? And are you encouraged by that? Are you encouraged that God is working in you through this suffering? Does this give you more of a reverence for God 
and less of a fear of man. That's what it's supposed to do. So let's move on, and we'll look at the second question in verse 18. So back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 18, and it says, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will be the outcome, or what, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So I'll read that again. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And again, Peter starts with an assertion of truth before asking the question. So in both of these verses, he starts with a, a fact. This is the truth. This is what's happening. Here's the question for you to think about. So the SV, it says, if the righteous is scarcely saved. And when we read this quick, we think, so not many people are being saved. The righteous are scarcely saved. And so the word scarcely in the Greek, it actually means difficulty. So if you read some of your translations, it'll say, if the righteous is difficulty, right? If, it's, if the righteous is saved through difficulty. So it's kind of a weird reading when it goes into the English. And we're going to expound on this a little bit more. And you can use either word in the English, but we may get the impression that is when we're reading this, that it's difficult for God to save us. That's the impression you get if you read it quickly, whether, whether it says scarcely or with difficulty, you might think that means that it's difficult for God to save. But that's not what the true Greek is saying, and we're gonna, that's gonna, I'm going to bring that out here in a few minutes. But we're going to look at this more and see how this word is used, scarcely or difficulty. And the easiest way to understand the Greek rendering of this what this means, and the, the righteous is saved with difficulty and tribulations. So what, the, what it's saying here is when the righteous are saved, they go through many difficulties and tribulations. That's the way the Greek is. We mess it up going into English. So I'll just read to you these couple verses in Acts where they use the same words. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty. It was a difficult trip. You still arrived, but it was difficult. Or you could interchange the word scarcely, but it doesn't sound good there, does it? Acts 27.8, it says, Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. So they use difficulty there. And then Acts twenty-seven sixteen, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So he's not, if, if you see how they're using that, they're not using that as it was difficult to do this, but we went through tribulations. It was a difficult journey. The salvation part that Peter's talking about isn't difficult for God. It's that while God is saving us, we are going to go through difficulty. We are going to go through tribulations. How do I know that? Turn to um, Acts 14, if you would. 14, verse 19. And I'll read this. But Jews came from Antioch and Ichion, and having persuaded the crowds... They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. 
But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now they're not talking about being saved. They're talking about that narrow road, that narrow path that God has put you on. There's going to be tribulations. It's going to be difficult. It's not the easy path. It's not the easy road. So it's not with difficulty that you've been saved, but because you've been saved, life gets really difficult. That's what Peter's saying. That's just a fact for every Christian to come to terms with. It's not the prosperity gospel. So we'll move on from here. So Peter moves us back to 1 Peter 4 here. It says, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So we've moved on, and it says, So if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And this is just a clear biblical example that no one born of Adam's race will escape God's judgment. Right? What will become? He keeps talking about judgment. Judgment starts at the household, and then judgment comes to the rest. Nobody's escaping judgment. Pick the judgment you want. Judgment by a loving father or judgment by a judge who condemns you for all eternity. So the ungodly here, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And the ungodly, the definition from Webster's 1828, says the wicked, impious, neglecting the fear of neglecting the fear and worship of God or violating his commands. So that's the ungodly. And then the sinner, the definition here is one that has voluntarily violated the divine law, a moral agent who has voluntarily disobeyed any divine precept or neglected any known duty. So that's the sinner. And so remember that this, this was our identity before we were saved. We were the ungodly. We were the sinner. We were the enemies. And the Bible makes it very clear that the ungodly and the sinner have no fear of God, and they actually scoff at God's authority, as we've already kind of seen. And in your spare time, just read Romans 1 through 3, and you can, you can study more of that. See your own self in there. <clears throat> so Peter here, and this is going to become more clear, but Peter is quoting... Proverbs 11.31, in which Peter, is, he's directly quoting from the Greek Septuagint. And I'll read it to you. Proverbs 11.31 in the Greek, it says, If the righteous man is scarcely saved, where will the impious and the sinner appear? So when we go back and we're thinking about what, what our ESV or our English standard says, it says, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? But in the Greek rendering, Peter asked the question, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? 
So question one, he had asked, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Question two is, where will they appear? Peter doesn't answer the question. He wants us to think about it. What is their outcome? Well, where will they appear? Which should make us think about our own outcome and where we will appear. But Jesus answers Peter's question for the ungodly and the sinner. Luke 13, 22 through 28, he says, it says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, Will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. That gives us a small picture of what will their outcome be? Where will they appear? So where, where, where will you appear? Have you obeyed the gospel of God? We know some have. We've baptized them. Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? If you can answer, I know my outcome. I know where I will appear. That's just by the grace of God. If it's going to be with him. So remember that Peter wrote this to encourage suffering Christians. So while it is important for Christians to think about these questions, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And where will the ungodly and sinner appear? It is most encouraging to answer the question, what will be the outcome for those who obey the gospel of God? And where will those who are obedient to Jesus Christ appear? Flip it around. Get the encouragement out of it. I'm a suffering Christian. Life is hard. I'm poor. The evil are getting rich. But what will be my outcome? Where will I appear? Yeah, what will be their outcome? Where will they appear? But what will be mine? Much greater, much glorious than any riches on earth, any power on earth, any suffering you go through. Much more glorious than that. That'll all be wiped away, burned in the fire. So Peter doesn't answer these questions, but fortunately God's word does answer these questions for the Christian. What will be your outcome? Well, where will you appear? And let's look at Revelation 21 verses 1 through 8. This will answer both questions. 
first part will answer the question for the Christian. The very end will answer the question for those who do not obey the gospel. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual, sexually or immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Where will you appear? What will be your outcome? seems there's two choices right there in eight verses for you. If you're suffering for Christ's sake, if you're obedient to him, the outcome is glorious. He will be your God. You will be his son or his daughter. Or if you're still in love with the world, he will not be your God. You will be and the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. So those are Peter's questions that we can all answer. And as we're suffering, get the encouragement from that. As you're having trouble being obedient to Christ, gain the encouragement from those questions. And Peter gives us a final application So there's no need for my application for these verses. Peter gives the final application in verse 19. Chapter 4, verse 19. He ends that paragraph and he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Started with suffering and it ends with trust in your faithful creator while you continue to do good.